From the newsrooms of the City Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Wednesday, January 17th. Over the weekend, Taiwan elected a new president. This was a race that was watched incredibly closely by leaders in Washington and Canberra for the ripple effect that it will have on so much of the world. Because the president-elect, Lai Ching-te, is precisely the person China didn't want to win. His campaign was centered on attacks against Beijing and its plans to unify with the island. So will Taiwan's new president bring his nation closer to war and decline, as China has claimed? Today, North Asia correspondent Eric Bagshaw on why what happens on a small island half the size of Scotland has the power to affect not only the global economy, but the safety of millions. So, Eric, over the weekend, Taiwan held a presidential election, and the result is one that is going to have far-reaching consequences. So can you tell me about the president-elect, Lai Ching-te? Who is he? What does he stand for? And why was his win so controversial? So president-elect Lai is a former doctor, a former mayor of Tainan, and President Tsai Ing-wen's vice president. He's been in politics for the last 20 years, so he's a bit of a veteran, but is sort of seen as the successor, not necessarily a new face, but a trusted face of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is the government in Taiwan. And this election is the first time that the government in Taiwan has won a third term and a resounding victory for the ruling party candidate in Taiwan's presidential elections, seen as a blow to China. China had called the vote a choice between war and peace on the island it claims as its own. So Taiwanese voters very much endorsed the DPP's vision for the country and for William Lai, as he's also known, to become the next president. And you've written that his win was actually a worst-case scenario for China. So why is that? Beijing really hates Lai Ching-te. He is seen as a troublemaker. In 2017, he once um, said that he was a, a pragmatic worker towards Taiwanese independence. He's since walked back those comments because independence itself is a really controversial issue within Taiwan and for China. Taiwan is not formally independent. Australia does not recognise Taiwan as a sovereign nation. And Taiwan itself does not at this stage want to be recognised as a sovereign nation because it could trigger a military conflict with Beijing. So there's this uneasy situation And that's known as the status quo, where Taiwan can be self-governed without being formally independent. And so Lai has historically been in favour of moving towards formal independence. So as far as Beijing's concerned, he is the leader of everything that represents a resistance to China in Taiwan Okay, so you've walked us through this tension here that this election sort of got to the heart of, which is that 
the Democratic Progressive Party defends the continuation of a sovereign Taiwan, whereas China claims, of course, that Taiwan is a province of the People's Republic of China and part of its own territory. So can you explain this tension between the two powers? When did it begin? Well, it goes all the way back to the end of the Chinese Civil War uh, in the mid-20th century. Following the end of the Chinese Civil War, the Kuomintang, uh, otherwise known as the KMT, who are the Chinese nationalists, they lost to the Chinese Communist Party and fled to Taiwan. Now, in Taiwan, there was already both a large indigenous population and two or three hundred years of migration from the mainland. What happened was the KMT installed themselves as the government in Taiwan and ruled it as a dictatorship. So the Chinese Communist Party's sworn enemies began ruling an island on their own. China, or rather the Chinese government, views it as a province of the mainland for that reason. It believes that it needs to be united because the KMT's rule over Taiwan is sort of the last bit of humiliation out of that civil war. You know, the fact that it couldn't control all of its territory, which is why Xi Jinping at most opportunities threatens Taiwan and then pledges to unify it with the mainland. And he hasn't ruled out using force to do so if necessary. Okay, and I wanted to ask you a bit more, I guess, about this aggression that China sometimes demonstrates towards Taiwan. Throughout Lai's campaign, Beijing carried out various intimidation tactics. Some people are calling it election interference, flying fighter jets around Taiwan, spreading disinformation. So do these actions perhaps foreshadow greater aggression from Beijing towards Taiwan? Look, it's it's hard to say. At the moment... China certainly is full of this bellicose rhetoric. Uh, It regularly threatens Taiwan and its leaders. It sends warships and fighter jets to harass Taiwan's air identification zone. Three PLA warplanes entered Taiwan's air defense zone on Friday, marking a total of 958 warplanes China has sent to harass Taiwan this year. That number is dumb. And it does that not just to intimidate the population into believing that perhaps siding with a candidate in Taiwan that is more friendly to Beijing's interests might be better for their long-term future. It also does it to deplete Taiwan's military stocks, to exhaust their fighter plane resources, and to let them know that there's a much, much bigger military power next door. So that's kind of part of the the grey zone. It also uses absolute torrents of misinformation in not just Taiwan's elections, but almost every day of the year, again, to generate this division within society and to generate scepticism towards Taiwan's leaders. Will it ever elevate beyond that, this kind of annoying intimidation that makes... Taiwan and the world very uncomfortable. Well, this is why deterrence and particularly military deterrence is so important. The moment the balance tips one way where China might think it could score a decisive and quick victory, it might be tempted to do that, which is why US support for Taiwan is so critical. Taiwan is just too small to be able to defend itself especially up against 
one of the world's largest militaries in the People's Liberation Army. So there's an imbalance there. And as long as that is somehow managed through the status quo and through US support, then it's possible that peace can be maintained. The other factor is we're assuming that, you know, the leader of China is a rational actor. And we can't always be certain of that. And you've seen Putin's war in Ukraine, you know, a rational actor may not have taken that gamble. But an irrational one, if you're facing a crisis at home, well, potentially there's nothing like a war to shore up your own power base. That's why people are treading so carefully. We'll be right back. So, Eric, I wanted to ask you about this potential for war with China and how the citizens of Taiwan are feeling on the ground, because you conducted a fascinating interview with a billionaire, Robert Sow, who's actually funding defense training to better prepare Taiwanese locals in the case of war. So can you tell me about that and how likely is a war with China? Robert Sow is this kind of maverick billionaire semiconductor magnate. Sometimes they get crazy, then we have to be, be prepared. You know, be, before the attack, nobody, nobody uh, expected Hamas could take such a violent action against the civilians. He's a very interesting character. He's now essentially retired uh, to devote his energy to defending Taiwan both because he has the the passion and the resources to do so. And as part of that, he's spending about $150 million basically training Taiwanese people to be prepared if war does break out, things like first aid and sheltering. I think giving people courses or training uh, to handle this makes them much more comfortable or more confident and also make them uh, less vulnerable to any kind of threat. So Robert Sow certainly thinks that there's a risk of war. I think that comes a bit from personal experience. He became very jaded with China after what happened in Hong Kong following the 2019-2020 pro-democracy protests. You're referring there to Beijing's crackdown on those millions of protesters, is that right? That's right. Essentially wiping out, you know, sort of the democratic movement in Hong Kong. There's still elections in Hong Kong but you've got to be a patriot to be able to run. And that kind of system, one country, two systems model, is very much the model that China has proposed for governing Taiwan. The only problem is that really no one in Taiwan wants that model. So Cao believes that if the time comes, that Taiwan will stand up and fight, and that's what he's getting prepared for. He doesn't want it to come to that. But again, he is very much um, focused on this deterrence model and that if you don't give China the window of opportunity because your defences are weak or because your allies are not supporting you, then the attack will not occur. And it's all about managing that balance. Okay, but even if China doesn't actually invade Taiwan... China has another strategy which it has employed, which is whittling down the number of countries that have diplomatic relations with Taipei. Nauru is the latest to sever ties with Taiwan. This just happened on Monday. So can you tell us more about what is perhaps China's long-term strategy here? Taiwan really only has a dozen 
official diplomatic partners. And just to give you some context, the reason for that is, is that when the Kuomintang went to Taiwan after the end of the Chinese Civil War, not only did China, the Chinese Communist Party, claim Taiwan as part of its territory, but the Kuomintang in Taiwan claimed mainland China as part of its territory. And the deal was that if you recognise one government, you can't recognise the other because the other has a competing claim to the other bit of territory. And so most nations, they opted to go with China, except for about a dozen, including Nauru, Palau, Tuvalu, quite small countries. But they opted to stay with Taiwan because they thought they might get perhaps a better deal on economic cooperation and a few other factors. That now, because of China's campaign, really in the development space, we've seen what's happened with the Solomon Islands, for example. Solomon Islands recognised Taiwan until 2019. Since then, it's recognised China and China has been on a building spree there. So what's happened is other smaller countries have been sitting there thinking, well, I wouldn't mind a piece of that. And signing up for new diplomatic deals with Beijing. Nauru is the latest. The Nauru government has announced that it will abide by the one China principle and resume diplomatic ties with China and cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan. What's your... And that happened on Monday. And the president there made it clear that he believed it was in Nauru's economic interests to recognise China and sever ties with Taiwan. Okay, and back to the president-elect Lai Ching-te... We know he, of course, has attacked Beijing's plans for unification in his campaigning. Obviously, this has upset China. We don't know what's going to happen. But what would the consequences actually be if China were to invade Taiwan, both to the people there as well as to the rest of us in the international community, including those of us in Australia? Unimaginably severe. A conflict over Taiwan is likely to involve the United States and potentially Australia because 50% of the world's cargo trade passes through the Taiwan Strait. It is a vital shipping route. It's also the home of the global semiconductor industry, which powers everything from your cars to your smartphones to your TVs, an absolutely essential node in the global economy. And most of it made within only a handful of factories in one city in Taiwan. So... For those reasons, and apart from that, just the principle of defending a country that is democratic, elects its own president, that has freedom of speech, means that you would expect some American involvement in a war and that potentially leading to a conflict between the world's two largest and most heavily armed superpowers is potentially catastrophic. So the stakes are very high. Thank you so much, Eric, for your time. Great to be with you guys. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Chi Wong and Julia Carcatzel. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.